a great morning. I'm excited to be here. This morning I have some good news for some of you, and the rest of you will be disappointed along with me. This will be our last message in this installment of the book of Nehemiah. Some of you are ready to get out of it. I know that. We still have two more chapters to go, so we aren't finished with it yet. We'll return to it uh, sometime in the new year, but I have been itching to talk about the incarnation just about all year long, and so I'm ready for this Christmas season, and uh, we'll be taking a break from Nehemiah so that we can turn to the Gospel of John next week. With that said, the opening message of a series and the end or the concluding message, are maybe some of the most difficult messages to really prepare as I think through what is the theme of this whole book? What's really important that we're grabbing hold of? And in Nehemiah, hopefully some of you will remember, the theme, at least in this installment, has been the regeneration that's taking place as God works to not only revitalize or reconstruct, but to restore a spiritual worship in His special people. From the beginning of Nehemiah, this has been the theme as He reconstructs the wall around Jerusalem. And then in the middle, where we began, we started looking at how regeneration is taking shape and how the people would rejoice in everything that they had from God and how that would turn into a renewal in and amongst themselves. How from repentance, God would be glorified. From affliction, we would find the provision that God has given us with everything. From delight in our possessions and all that God has given us, we would find delight in God's simple goodness. From a warning, the people would be regenerated or transformed to turning from confession to a covenant. And we've been looking at the terms of that covenant. We end in verse 39 this morning in a unique spot. And there's a new theme I want you to pick up on. Not only is there regeneration and transformation that's available through the work of Christ, but there's an interesting creative tension between ideas. What do I mean by creative tension? We see it all around us, especially as we study the Bible. What does it mean that you and I each have a responsibility to respond to God, but that we also call Him sovereign, in control of all things? If we're too simple-minded about what the Bible teaches, we end up putting these things maybe on one end of a rope and the other on the other end of a rope, and we imagine them as two separate ends. But that's not what the Bible teaches. There's harmony in these things that seem to be in conflict. There's harmony in this idea of transformation, renewal, and also on the other end of being an individual. In the covenant that we've been looking at with God's people, there's harmony in the fact that we need an individual confession and an individual relationship with God, but also that our identity is maintained and defined by our community. What is this creative tension that the Bible is pointing us towards? How does it relate more specifically to regeneration and revitalization in a people? 
If you need an illustration of what I mean by creative tension, I just want you to imagine my son Bubba for a moment. He destroys everything. This morning as we were leaving for church, he walked out and he was walking to the car. We spent some time at the end of Thanksgiving and the rainy weekend to put up Christmas lights so that we could be festive, for, uh, mainly for my mother-in-law. And, but Bubba walks out this morning and he kicks over a light that we've stuck in the ground. Was he being bad? I really don't think he was. He was experimenting. He learned that by kicking the light, he has the power to break it. When we're sitting on the couch, he, he has this new thing that he likes to do. He likes to grab my face as hard as he possibly can and squeeze with all of his power. He's learning that he's strong. Is he being bad? He's actually not. How could it be that he could be so destructive and not be bad? How can he be so destructive and still be innocent? There's a creative tension that exists in reality. We need to be careful as we read the Bible not to make things so simple that they exist on a straight and narrow line with only two options. What the Bible teaches us is just as complicated as the world around us. It demands careful attention to the creative tension that God has created. With that said, let us pray in preparation of reading from the Word of God. Father in heaven, I thank you for this morning and this time. Lord, we lift up to you those who are traveling, those who are sick and unable to be with us. God, we pray that you would be with them and meet their needs this morning as they worship you, that they would be reminded through text messages and phone calls that they are loved by their church. Lord, as we gather this morning, we pray that you would relieve the stress and the burden of things that we're working on and things we're preparing to work on in the new week, that we would set this time aside to worship you, that from a reading of your word that our heart might be softened, that we might be able to behold the amazing truth found here, that we would understand it and know how to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hopefully you have your Bibles open to Nehemiah chapter 10. If not, I'll invite you to turn there to read along with me while I read out loud from verse 39 all the way through chapter 11, verse 2. The Bible says, For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem." I want to begin where verse 39 ends in chapter 10 with this phrase, we shall not neglect the house of our God. So far in Nehemiah chapter 10, what we've read through, what we've been reading through most recently has been a covenant that the people have decided to put down in writing between themselves to maintain the worship and the spiritual health of the house of God, namely the temple that was built in 
Jerusalem. The history of God's people so far is that they had been already gone through the Babylonian captivity and through the king Artaxerxes of Persia. They've been granted permission to come back to Jerusalem. Ezra has rebuilt the temple and it stood rebuilt for some time, but Jerusalem still looked like a heap of trash. Nehemiah, hearing this news, was brokenhearted for the state of Jerusalem, God's special city. A city that means, Jerusalem means city of peace as a symbol of God's peace with his people on earth. Nehemiah returns, he rebuilds the walls, and here's where we're at. What happened to cause such spiritual decay? It wasn't just the Babylonian captivity because we know through the voice of the prophets and the books that we can read in the Bible that the reason the Babylonian captivity was permitted to happen through God's sovereignty was as discipline for his people for their spiritual lethargy. In fact, the people of Israel's hardships that existed during the captivity was a direct consequence of neglecting spiritual worship towards God. Here the people are in a state of renewal. Ezra has stood, he's read the word, the people have responded to the word, the Levites have instructed them in its meaning, they've understood it, they've repented, they've wept, they've turned to joy, all of these things have been done so that they could gather together, they've observed the Feast of Tabernacles for the first time since Joshua led them into Jerusalem, and here they are in a state of renewal. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about when I say state of renewal. When we've gone to conferences or revivals, some of you are old enough to remember what revivals are. And we feel the immense closeness with God. We make dedications in our mind to be faithful in observing everything that he's given us. We make dedications in our mind to observe everything that he's given us, to not neglect the 20 minutes of Bible study in the morning, to not neglect a momentary prayer in our life, to not neglect the awareness that we have of God's presence in everything that we do. But what happens when we return home from those Bible conferences or or church camps or those spiritual high and lifting up moments? What happens ultimately if you've experienced that, then you've also experienced the spiritual fatigue that follows? With the awareness of how close we can be to God also comes the awareness of how far away we can fall in simple neglect. This is the commitment that the people, this is the motivation for writing a covenant, for identifying themselves as God's people, that we would not neglect the house of our God. Three weeks ago, I pointed out that this Transition takes place. No longer are we talking about the house of the Lord, but we're talking about the house of our Lord. You can see the revival in the people as they come to verse 39 to say, we will not neglect the house of our God. He is ours and we will let him be ours. We will make sure that we know that he is ours. We will teach our children that he is ours. We will speak to him on personal terms because he is a personal God. We will not neglect the spiritual house, the spiritual care of the house of our God. But what does it mean to neglect? 
A better translation here would actually, I think, be forsake, but we'll work with neglect. What is neglect? It's a passive term. You don't have to do anything to be neglectful. According to the Cambridge Dictionary, neglect is a situation in which you do not give enough care or attention to someone or something, or the state of not receiving enough care or attention. I want you to think about this. While neglect is a passive action, it is an active form of abuse. Neglect is abusive. This can be hard to grapple with whenever we think about neglect not requiring any concerted effort on our part and still being an active form of abuse. We see it in the world around us in more ways than we can count. Failing to provide for the physical necessities, especially of someone who is dependent upon you. Emotional abandonment. That means not being willing to listen to someone who needs to process something with you. Not being allowed to express difficulties that you are going through. Making somebody or something a low priority. This is when we wake up late and we're more concerned with getting to school or work on time than we are to spending time with God before we do anything in the morning. Can I tell you the honest truth? I think if we really make God the priority in our lives, we'd be willing to be late a little bit more often. And everyone's Western minds just exploded. I actually think it's more important, it's a bigger priority, that you spend time in the morning with God than get to school on time, than get to work on time. Neglect leads to countless social issues in our world today. Child neglect is the obvious and first thing to come to our mind. But we can also neglect our spouses, We can also neglect our our work. We can neglect our work. We can make it too low of a priority. We can run too far. Remember what I said, there's a creative tension between being responsible and having a right priority in our lives. We can neglect our minds by allowing ourselves to be inactive, to watch trash all of the time, to do nothing but read trash. which ultimately can lead to a kind of mind decay. Most importantly, we can neglect our spiritual well-being. This is the concern of the people of Israel. This is their motivation for writing a covenant, that we will not neglect this, that we will hold each other accountable to this, because I know my human nature. History throughout the Bible has affirmed this, if nothing else. Left alone to my own devices, I will fall away from God. I will neglect his spiritual worship. I will not be revitalized. I've experienced this renewal. Well, here's my promise to you that as we walk away from here, I will maintain the worship of God. This is my promise in the church today. As we leave here this morning, we promise and covenant even amongst one another that the spiritual worship of the church will be maintained even when we are not gathered in this place. The paraphrase from the second paragraph of the church covenant is that we will be committed to the secret devotions, to the family devotions in our household. This is the purpose and motivation behind all of this. 
that in realizing that we have the propensity to fall away, even from a state of spiritual uplifting and renewal, that we would promise to stay away from it. We should be afraid of neglect because it doesn't require effort. It feeds our, the, the, the very basic element of who we are. We get to be lazy. And we can experience neglect. The text, neglecting the house of our God, this personal God. We should be even more afraid of neglecting the personal God that we are able to worship. This is directly abuse. You have the ability to abuse God today and every day of your life. The people have made this spiritual keep up their personal issue that it's worth fighting for because it is their God that they're planning to maintain worship for. And certainly we should fear neglecting the house of God, too. For Israel, the house of the Lord was a special place, literally representative of the dwelling place of God among men. More significantly, it represented their personal and their communal identity. Our worship of God as we gather as a church this morning is not something that we do in obedience or in complicity or even through a form of routine. The reason we pray as we begin that we would set aside the distractions of this world is because this is the utmost priority of our lives. What is the chief end of man? What is the purpose of man living in this world? It is not that we would be able to obtain any sort of glory for ourselves. In fact, it's not even so that we could acquire any measure of success that would be defined by this world. The chief end of man is that we would know God, that we would have a relationship with him, that we would glorify him. All of these things are true. Whatever we may be able to achieve through our work, through our diligence, through our studies, even through our intellectual ascent means nothing if we have neglected knowing God. And this is the issue that we come to as we move to chapter 11. Imagine now, Jerusalem's been rebuilt, and hopefully I've done a decent job of painting a picture. The temple's built, the walls are built. What does the rest of the city look like? It probably still looks like rubble. People still weren't living there. In fact, chapter 11 picks up from where chapter 7 leaves off. While the city had been rebuilt, the walls had been rebuilt, it still wasn't a populated city. Trying to think of a city that at once time was very big, but then everyone moved away from it, and now it's not much of a city at all. Pine Bluff. Yeah, these things exist. It's not much of a city if people aren't there. Even though Ezra had rebuilt the temple, Nehemiah had built the wall, people needed to live there. The people had made this covenant that they would worship God. And and in order to do that, it required that people were present to worship God in the temple. And so we find that the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. And the rest of the people cast lots so that one out of every ten of them would move to the city. But I want you to understand that there is a cost to this reconstruction. There's a price that needs to be paid in coming back to Jerusalem. Some of the reasons that people maybe didn't want to uproot their lives and move to Jerusalem is for whatever time they become comfortable in whatever village that they had been living in. There's a consequence and cost to uprooting our lives. To move back to Jerusalem, the people had to reorder their view of their material things. 
They had to move from where they had property, where they had a life, where they had a livelihood, and they had to move into the city where they would buy a new home, probably start a new career because they couldn't be farmers in the city. And they had to risk it all that they might be successful. They had to begin some new sort of industry. Second, moving to Jerusalem meant rearranging their social life. With upheaval, what's common and what would come with that is that meant that they would leave behind their friends and their family, those that they had spent time to be around. They would have to sacrifice this as they moved away, maybe even spending time with loved ones only once a year. When we move away, oftentimes we say that we'll keep up with all of the people that we kept up with before. That our friends will, will still be friends the way that we were before. And certainly we don't unfriend people. It just doesn't happen. That's just not real life. When you move away from people, this is a consequence that comes with it. Your relationship changes completely. You don't keep up with people the same way because you have a life and you have to maintain relationships with people who are in proximity closer to you. And you still care for those people. You still mention them in your prayers. You still reach out for them to time to time. You still make plans to go see them and to visit them. But ultimately, when you move, you make a sacrifice. A material sacrifice, a social sacrifice. Moving to a city that's rebuilt like Jerusalem comes with a price to pay. That's why the people kind of came up with a lottery system to decide who would end up moving. There's another issue. Remember, this is pre-B.C. times, so this is B.C. times. Having a city that was rebuilt like this with walls, all of a sudden now you're a target. I mean, remember, as Nehemiah was rebuilding the wall, Sambalat, Tobiah, and these guys were already under attack, causing threats and saying, hey, you're trying to rebuild this wall so that you can raise some sort of rebellion against the Persian Empire. Nehemiah said, no, I'm not doing these things. You've made them up. You've invented them out of your own mind. It's not true. The problem is, even without the Persian Empire, Jerusalem now, with a rebuilt wall and repopulated with all of its wealth now, and the temple rebuilt, and people sending a, an annual tax, as they've covenanted together to do for support of the people, Jerusalem would be a target. Well, this is where the enemy needs to come and attack. We need to lay siege to Jerusalem while they're weak. And so moving there would come not only with the sacrifice of material things and social things, but it would come with risk. Everything could be taken away from you. Bandits could come and, and take what you have. It could be even worse than just the material sacrifices that you've already made. Still, the people who were chosen by Lot were told in verse 2, went willingly. They willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. Among them were the leaders of the people. We're told that in verse 1. All of the leaders... I want you to think about what this means. What could this possibly mean that the leaders were committed, that all of them went back to Jerusalem? Being a spiritual leader means taking on all of the risk. Oftentimes, I think in our Western culture, we glorify leadership to a position that it does not belong. When really, and from a spiritual perspective, what leadership truly means is that we would be willing to suffer before anyone else suffers so that we can help 
others while they're suffering. It's not a place of power. It's not a place of authority. It's not a place of directing. It's a place of loneliness. Especially in the church. Sunday school teachers, all those who aspire to be Sunday school teachers, children's church teachers, nursery workers. What leadership means from a spiritual perspective is being willing to suffer before anyone else suffers. This is the sacrifice that we make, that these people all decided to live in Jerusalem. I want to maybe paint a picture that helps us to understand the significance of moving back to the new Jerusalem. We're told in the Bible in Revelation 21.3, a picture of a new Jerusalem descending out of the clouds, coming to heaven. If you were here last Sunday evening, you heard us talk about this picture. This time that God has reborn and renewed the earth, that there's a new heaven and a new earth, and out of the clouds descends a new Jerusalem, a new city. A new city of peace where we will dwell in the presence of God. This is ultimately the picture that every Christian longs for and holds on to. Somehow, our end goal has somehow become just heaven. And we look forward to this intermediate state where our body is separated from our spirit and we get to be in the presence of Jesus. And certainly that is something to long for and to be excited for. But Christians, hear me, that is not our ultimate hope. You were made to have a body. You were made to walk in grassy fields. You were made to experience God's creation. His ultimate promise and your ultimate hope is this new heaven, this redeemed earth, this new earth, this new Jerusalem descending from the clouds where you will be reunited with your body, where you will be able to experience peace, not only in community and among people, but with all of the world. This is the glory of heaven that we're able to look forward to. And I ask, why, when we paint this picture of this new redeemed society given to us by God, why would people not want to dwell in this new Jerusalem? Their reasons are the same as the people of Nehemiah's day who did not want to dwell in the city that was being reconstructed. To dwell in the house of God in the new Jerusalem will cost you material possessions. It will cost you social sacrifices. If you don't believe me, go and tell more people that you're a Christian. You think it's funny until you start talking about what you actually believe to say that you're a Christian. When you say that you actually believe that there's a sovereign God in charge of things and that you actually believe things don't happen without accidents, that you actually believe suffering has a purpose, and people look at you and they say that you're crazy. Oh, or even beyond that, you say that you actually believe what the Bible says when it calls sin, sin, and people say that you're hateful and you're a bigot. To live in the house of God, to not neglect the presence of our Lord, to not neglect spiritual worship requires a social sacrifice in all of us. And when you neglect that social sacrifice among those who live in the world, you denigrate and damage the testimony of the church for all saints. When we neglect what it means to be spiritually awake, we make a testimony among those who do not understand that says that to be a Christian requires no sacrifice. 
Loved ones, to be a Christian requires all the sacrifice. As Christ ascended up the mount, as He carried the cross, as He bore the sins of the entire world, to be a Christian required ultimate sacrifice. It was not the suffering of the cross that made Jesus cry out. It was Him accepting freely the sin of the entire world, every sin that had yet come to be, every sin that existed in the present day, and even the sin of us and tomorrow. As He bore that sin, He carried the consequence of that sin to the grave, and He demonstrated His ultimate power. He demonstrated the first testimony that is to come of the new Jerusalem, of the new earth that would be reborn. He demonstrated in His resurrection everything that we have to long for. To be a Christian requires sacrifice. To stay in a place of spiritual awakeness where we are not neglecting what it means to be spiritually awake, to not neglect the house of the Lord, to go and experience spiritual revival and to come back and not experience immediate lethargy demands consistent sacrifice. This is the purpose of the covenant. This is the purpose of the order that is demonstrated in verse 11. And here is where we find what I call the creative tension. Because oftentimes, whenever we talk about a spiritual revival amongst a group of people in our minds, the picture that we have is that spiritual revival will come from a place of being open-minded and from leaning in to the way that God is directing us and leaning in to the way that God is directing individuals. And this is where our minds, our human minds at least, can really be bewildered. Because it is not just in a place of spiritual openness that we experience revival, but it is in order. Paul commends the church in 1 Corinthians to do everything in good order. And somehow this is the rope that we've constructed, that we must be so orderly and tidy that there is no open-mindedness Amongst us, or we have to be so open minded that there is no order amongst us. And what we find as the Bible reveals our human nature to ourselves and teaches us about ourselves and even about our communal identity is that order is actually a necessity amongst us. It's an evidence of maturing faith in both the communal sense and in our individual faith. When you have order in your spiritual worship and in your disciplines, This is evidence that you're becoming disciplined and you're growing in your relationship with God. A church, a newly formed church, maybe they have no creed, maybe they have no doctrinal statement, and somebody stands up and they claim to speak on behalf of God and they preach heresy. The leaders in the church should say something. And they should do something to prevent such things from happening again. So we adopt doctrinal statements to protect and to define what it is that we believe. These good order has purpose. Why is it that we choose to neglect what is so simple? When I read Nehemiah chapter 8 and chapter 9, and 
I read about the people standing and being willing to hear from the Word of God and the joy that comes from it. And I see that spiritual revival that's taking place in the people. I long for the day that God's people will experience this again. The truth is, though, and I'm reminded by the example of the people, the reason people do not long to live in the reconstructed Jerusalem is the same reason people don't want to live in God's new Jerusalem. I'd ask, is that the example of the world around us? Or is that an example of the church 